bhakti is independent. This is what the gentleman is saying, the person is saying. Like Krishna, because bhakti is the supra-shakti of Krishna, so fully independent. Gyan is not independent. Gyan can't go in the heart unless the heart's pure. Can't have ignorance and knowledge in the same place at the same time. Bhakti can go where there's ignorance, not be contaminated, drive out the ignorance and fully shine. So that's what bhakti does. But how does she do it? See, she situates herself in the heart of a madhyamadikari. And that madhyamadikari's primary activity is the distribution of bhakti. He's in the realm of the preaching. So, and that, that madhyamadikari exercises discrimination. In fact, madhyamadikari is characterized by discriminating faculty. And the Kanishtadikari is just involved with bhakti and everybody's fine with the Madhimadikari is thinking how to make advancement. So he's careful who he associates with, where he eats, and what he reads, and how he spends all of his time, and so forth. The very life of the Madhimadikari is characterized by discrimination, proper discrimination. So one of the there's four principal types of discrimination that he exercises according to Srimad Bhagavatam. In relation to the Lord, he cultivates his love. In relation to those who are also devotees like himself, he cultivates friendship. In relation to those who are innocent, he distributes... Sukriti. Krishna consciousness, yeah. And to those who are envious, he avoids them. These are the characteristics of the Madhyamadikari. So... Bhakti in his heart, bhakti is indiscriminate. She goes wherever she wants. That's a fact. But she distributes herself through those whose hearts she's taken shelter of. And that person exercises some discrimination. He doesn't try to give bhakti to envious people any more than we would throw pearls before the swine, as, as the Bible says. So there is discrimination in the distribution of bhakti on the part of the Madhimadikari in whose heart Bhakti Devi is taking place, who appreciates bhakti and knows where she should be distributed, perhaps where not, and some discrimination is exercised. And in his distribution of that, he's creating sukriti as a medium through which it is distributed by his very movements and actions, he's creating the opportunity for sukriti, even for lower species of life. So take that example. Let us say a real devotee is sitting and absorbed in uh, meditation on Krishna Leela, and a cobra comes, saying is going to attack him, and a dog comes and barks and scares the cobra away. Then the dog gets some Sukriti. <laughs> so, but we don't expect the dog is now going to be, read the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> so, if the bhakti will go everywhere, it's true. But where she goes, whether that receptacle in which she's distributing herself is a fit one for fully manifesting bhakti, that's the question. So for the example of the lower species of life is pertinent. Because if bhakti goes to the dog, or to the cat, or to the tree, the stone, through the Madhimadikari, for example, who's doing Harinam Sankirtan in the forest, then she's going there, but they're not going to read the Chaitanya Charitamrita tomorrow. So they have some start. So that's called Sukriti. That's the beginning. As that accumulates, you get a human form of life and meet the devotees and, and participate. And we find also, P. 
people on all, are associating with bhakti and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's movement on different levels. There are people that are avoiding it. Hare Krishna, get out of here. There are people who come to the temple, and they also go to the Buddhist temple, and they go to that temple, and they think, let's go to, let's go to the Krishna temple and hear the lecture today, or to take prasadam. So they have some appreciation for it, but they don't have a sense that it's it's the solution to all the problems of life, that it's the, that's the ultimate truth. That hasn't dawned on them yet. That's called shraddha. It dawns on them like, it's all here. Everything I could possibly want it can be found right here. So they're in a stage of, from agyata sakriti, unknowingly being involved and getting benefit. See, that's the beauty of bhakti. Unknowingly you're involved, still she's giving herself to you. Agyata sakriti, to gyata sakriti. With some understanding and appreciation, conscious appreciation of bhakti, they're participating. And then there are those who are participating with full faith. At least in the, in the, the fullness of faith that they believe that if I really applied myself, I could get everything that I could possibly want from this. And that's the idea of Shraddha. Basic idea. Oh, we all fit into that category, but not everybody that comes to the temple does. But they are all getting some bhakti. That's the, the logic of it. Right. And I know that in Chaitanya Charitamrita Prabhupada mentions the three types of Sukriti Gan, Karma, and Bhakti, Sukriti. Also, Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita that four kinds of people with Sukriti come to me the Gyani, the inquisitive, the materially in want, and the uh, distressed person. Gyani cha bratarshava. Arto jignasu artati gyani cha bratarshava. So these are four kinds, kinds of people with Sukriti. Then when an opportunity comes, they turn to me. They don't have bhakti proper yet, but because they have Sukriti in relation to bhakti, they come to bhakti and eventually they, those who are distressed and in want of money, they gradually come to the platform, their karma. They're under the influence of, of karma. They have Sukriti that takes them towards Bhakti. They come gradually to become inquisitive, like the Jignasa means the inquisitive, like Shonaka. And then that, and then from there they come to Gyan, Gyan Mishra Bhakti and surrender to Krishna, pure Bhakti. This is the progression given in Bhagavad Gita in the seventh chapter. So there's a fair amount of scriptural reference to All right, so well, support uh, the idea. Okay, but are the is it in, is it down? Are we drawing it out, or is it in black and white, where the people who only accept it in black and white, you mm-hmm. know, is there, are there? For instance, by looking at verse about the four types of pious men, Sukriti mentioned in that verse by name, yeah, and there's an explanation in there. Arto jignasrati gani gani namam mudha. Prapadante Naradama, Maya Pritigyana, Asuram Daivamashrita. Duskritini, he first mentions four who have no, don't have Sukriti, and then four that have Sukriti. Okay. And of all of them, one who's in knowledge is the best. Is that the next verse? Yeah. And then he surrenders to me. It's talking about Karma Mishra Bhakti and Gyan Mishra Bhakti, and coming to pure Bhakti from those stages. The Karma Mishra Bhaktis will come to Gyan Mishra Bhakti, and Gyan Mishra Bhakti will come to come to Shuddha Bhakti. Mm-hmm. Krishna says, Vasudeva Sarmiti Samahatma Sudhuda, Bahujanmanamam Te Gyanam, Mampapadyante. So there in Bhagavad Gita, 
And I don't know if he'll accept Prabhupada's. Oh, I'm sure he's one of those kind of... He will. Yeah, so I, I would can, have to I can, post it. I can send you something from Prabhupada's writing about it. I'll look it up in Chaitanya Charitamrita where he speaks yeah. about Sukritini. Sukriti. You know, something that's directly quotable. Sridhar Maharaj he won't accept. We don't know. Maybe. If it's in Sridhar Maharaj's book, yeah. some, something to be either read or uh, copied. So what is his point? When one Bhakti, person says you get to take drugs and you come to it, he's opposing that? No, that's he's actually... No, my a- answer to her mm-hmm. was that it's not the pill that brought you to Krishna, it's but your, it's your Sukriti. Mm-hmm. You know, it's your eligibility to appreciate the truth. Okay? And she was all right with that. Mm-hmm. That's you know? accurate. Yeah. She was all right with that. But then someone else jumped in and said, you know, they're uh, the hardliner. Uh, no... That's not true. That's a deviation, another deviation from your side. That, uh, you know, bhakti has no cause. It's causeless. To think you have some eligibility for bhakti. Yeah. But bhakti qualifies people. That's what we're saying. Bhakti qualifies people, not all at once. And nothing could be more obvious than that. That's a good statement. Bhakti qualifies people not all at once. Yeah. And this is how she qualifies them. If anybody comes in touch with bhakti, then they get some some mercy. But it doesn't manifest all at once, so there are stages. Therefore, we have from shraddha to prem, given by Rupa Goswami. And beneath shraddha, something is going on too. If nothing is going on, we say when the, the inanimate things... Mahaprabhu was concerned that my movement is forgiving love of Krishna to everyone. He grabbed Haridas Thakur and said, and shook him and said... What about the inanimate, the non-moving things? How will they benefit by, by my mission? And Thardas Thakur said, don't worry, he said. When you chant into the forest or down into a well or into a mountain canyon, that echo is the non-moving living entities chanting back. So if it's indeed true that they can be benefited, and bhaktis cause us in that with them, in other words, they don't require any qualification they don't have to be even human beings. But the speak yeah. of Ghanis, she'll go to them. Yes. So if you accept that. But then you see the, ro- the rocks aren't coming in every morning to Mangalarti. So they have some beginning. So it doesn't happen all at once. And that's called Bhakti Urmukhi Sukriti. In other words, Sukriti in relation to Bhakti. So those who are agents of Bhakti distributing that, they're creating this Sukriti everywhere, which is qualifying people to come to Shraddha. Therefore, some people join and immediately go very quickly and so forth because they have more security or they rose to a certain point in the previous life. A person may rise to the platform of Ruchi in this life. Next life, he'll start over again. But he'll go through Shraddha and, uh, you know, Bhajana Kriya, Anartanavritti, Nishta, Ruchi, very quickly. The things that we do very well in this life, we know them from the past. The things that we're that are difficult, we're learning them in this life whether it be material or spiritual. And these stages in bhakti can take lifetimes. One can reach nishta and lifetimes of nishta before ruchi, and ruchi, lifetimes of ruchi before asakti. And therefore, sudulava bhakti is very rare. Sudulava prashanta, kotisvabhi mahamune. It's very, very rare. What we should be happy about, encouraged by, is that we know where to go 
and where we are on the map and that we're applying ourselves appropriately in terms of where we are. We should get solace from that and feel encouraged. But if we don't know where we are on the map and we don't know where to go or we know one one and not the other, then it's, it's a problem. Therefore, it's important to locate ourselves on the map and to know the goal, not just to wander around the mall. <laughs> Sometimes I, I wonder, yesterday, a lot of times I chant the patients in the ambulance. Hmm. And when I'm working with my regular partner, I'm pretty used to it and I'm, I'm uninhibited about it. But yesterday I was working with somebody I don't usually work with, but I hadn't worked with in actually many years. And I had this uh, patient, and I was, I was chanting, but not loud enough for uh, people up in the cab to hear me. And I, I know the patient could, could hear me, but I don't think it was that distinct. But I felt like, well, at least there's some vibration there. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was just wondering, you know, in my mind, how much benefit there was since they couldn't really hear the name distinctly. It's relative how much benefit, not only hearing, but your own sincerity and purity and so forth. But there is great potential if everything is in place. Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasati Thakur, one of his brothers, was on his deathbed. And Sarasati Thakur sat with him and chanted Japa. And I believe he was in a coma for quite some time. And he was chanting and, of course, well-wishing sending well-wishing towards that soul. He came out of the coma and spoke to him. And he said, You have freed me from offense in my past life. I was a Ramanuja Vaishnav, and I criticized the Gaudias, Gaudiya Vaishnavas. And by hearing your chanting, I've been relieved of that. He said that and passed away. So... If everything's in place, right person, the right chanting, uh, something wonderful can happen. Something wonderful will happen regardless. That's an extraordinary example. You were uh, talking about the, the Madhyamadakari and how bhakti uh, takes root in the uh, Madhyamadakari's heart and, hmm. and uh, transfers herself to others through that Madhyamadakari. I was thinking about just one verse in the Majalila, and I can't remember it exactly, and in the purport, I think Lord Chaitanya is talking about how one who, one who has firm faith in the holy name and has realized that Krishna is present in his name can convert uh, thousands of people to Vaishnavism. And Prabhupada mentions in the purport where uh, somebody who doesn't have that realization that Krishna is in his name, but has firm faith in that and that philosophical conception can also convert uh, many hundreds of people to Vaishnavism. So I guess my question is, is that person who doesn't have that realization but has that faith, would he be a a Madhyamadakari? A firm faith, Nishta, is Madhyamadakari. So, generally we consider Madhyamadakari has some power. That's bhakti proper. When the surup shakti is manifest in the heart, then that's bhakti proper. Now, things are talked about in stages, of course. 
but the, the stages are there's overlapping and there's so much gray involved. So, in other words, when one comes to the stage of asakti, there's the last stage of sadhana bhakti. From there, he enters into bhava bhakti. So bhava bhakti, then his life is bhava bhakti. So, in spiritual emotion, he's cultivating that emotional spiritual life directly. But it's not that there's no bhav or influence whatsoever in earlier stages. So we can't say that a devotee who has attained Nishta, he's a Madhimadikari and he has some some feeling. And based on his firm faith he can disseminate. After all, it's the faith that's being disseminated, so his faith He's sharing by his words and by his example, and that's what people are being inspired by and taking to it. So in that sense, I would say, yes. But like I say, there are so many shades. But nishta means in a good position. Ruchi means in safe, something now positive. Shreya kairaba chandrika batarnam, nourishment coming from the other side. And that ruchi is the basis of our whole spiritual life. And as ruchi is intensified, then becomes attachment, and attachment means becomes focused in a particular way. The taste is general, but now it's focused. And then by cultivating that in a focused way, it turns to bhava, and the bhava is cultivated, and it comes to prema. So we were talking about this last time you came before we started the class, and we gave an interesting description of the different madhyamadhikari, kanishta madhyam, madhyam madhyam, uttam madhyam, kanishta uttam, Madhyam Uttam, Uttam, Uttam. And as per the Gaudiya periodical of Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasri Thakur, all the Uttams, from Kanishta Uttam to Uttam Uttam, all relate to devotees in Prem, and therefore in the Leela of Krishna. So they're generally not the ones we meet in the preaching sector. Krishna Chakravarti Thakur says, Mother Jasoda is the standard of Prem. He's talking about Vatsalya praying in one place in Bhagavatam. He's made that comment. So in, anyway, according to that idea, that analysis, Uttamutam means he has Gopi Bhav in the Gopi Prem. And beneath that he may be Madhyamutam or Kanishta Uttam. <laughs> so that makes Madhyamadikari very much higher than what we might think about. And it makes Kanishtadikari higher also, which it is. Therefore, we have that beautiful statement of Puri Goswami Maharaj once when, when he was told, Sridhar Maharaj has said that you were Kanishtadikari. One of the disciples of Sridhar Maharaj was saying like this, and, and Guru Maharaj Sridhar Maharaj had once made a comment like that about Puri Goswami Maharaj and about Prabhupada and about Madhav Maharaj based on their activities, because Puri Goswami Maharaj was in charge of installing all the deities in Gaudiya Math and deity worship which is generally this, for the Kanishtadikaris, he said, Puri Maharaj example of Kanishtadikari. Not that he is a Kanishtadikari, but he was doing that kind of say, Madhav Maharaj Madhimadikari. Strictly following Bhakti Siddhanta and preaching, and he said, Bhakti Vedanta Sami, Prabhupada Uttamadikari, in a very big way, innovative, and, and so forth. And so anyway, when there was some argument between the moths after Sridhar Maharaj had left the world, one of the disciples of in Sridhar Maharaj's group under Govinda Maharaj had said that oh, people shouldn't go to Puri Maharaj. Sridhar Maharaj said, Guru Maharaj said he's a Kanishtadikari. 
And so then the disciples of Puri Maharaj came to him and said, they're saying that you are, that Sri Maharaj said you are Kanishtadikari. And what did he say? He said, Sri Maharaj said? Oh, he has given me some Adikari. Some Adikar. In Bhakti. Oh, and he, he wasn't facetious or making lighter. He was actually feeling, I have some Adikar. Someone who I know has Adikar, standing in Bhakti, has given me some Adikar, has recognized me. Oh, and I feel very fortunate. So even as I say, Kanishta Adikari, it's, it's a high thing. We say that Prabhupada created a Kanishta Adikari, Adikari movement in many respects, because everybody, most everybody was a Kanishta Adikari, but you have to start somewhere. And to do that is, was not an easy thing, to start from, from nothing. Laying the foundation, that's the hardest part. You have to dig down in order to go up. Of course, and he, didn't, he didn't teach that we should be Kanishtadikaris. He taught that we should be Uttamadikaris. And he said a wonderful example. And in that sense, he didn't make a Kanishtadikari movement, but it's not uh, a criticism. So it's, for one who understands these things, it's quite a compliment. So Madhyamadikari, according to the previous discussion we were having, then each level of Madhyamadikari, Madhyam, Kanishta Madhyam, Madhyam Madhyam, Uta Madhyam, all have some bhava. They all have some sense of their real identity and the moving in accordance with that, and cultivating that. Now that's different than... Where is this all described again? The particular way of analyzing those stages that I'm talking about was written in the the Gaudiya magazine of Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthi Thakur's movement, one article. So anyway, according to that analysis, then someone who has nishta, ruchi, ashakti, all still uttam kanishtas, and with bhavas, there's different ways of talking about it. But generally, more in a more general sense, we would say nishta is a madhyamadikari. Because nishta means, nishta means firm faith. And firm faith means what? That the faith that we have, by which we move, has been tested. And if it's firm faith, it means that all of our being is engaged in that. That means that our, we're not only physically engaged, you see, to be physically engaged is not so hard. It's not as much of a challenge as to be mentally engaged and to be intellectually engaged as well. That's more of a challenge because when you're in, in, mentally and intellectually engaged, then you really are taking a closer look at what it is that you're engaged in and, and you find out really where you are in the whole thing. And that can be discouraging at a glance, but as I said earlier, if you have a real accurate assessment of where you are, you are that much further along in the process. And then you know what you have to do to go forward. So a lot of times we don't want to engage our intelligence. We don't want to be mindful. We just want to just move around and do something physical and, and call it bhakti. That can't be nishta. If it's firm faith, then all of our being should be engaged. And if it's if our intelligence isn't engaged, but we're physically engaged, then that faith that has us engaged, when it meets with an intellectual challenge, it may be damaged, it may be displaced, 
for some time. It may be suppressed, and our physical involvement will stop. So just that physical involvement, if that can't be nishta. Nishta has to involve intellectual engagement. Now, it doesn't mean we have to be smart, but <laughs> we all have some intelligence. So that intelligence, that is our discriminating faculty. And again, that was the madhya mischaracterized by proper discrimination. When that intelligence is engaged, then we can say that's nishta. And this corresponds with also Bhagavatam. The Srimad Bhagavatam says what? Nasta prayeshu abhadreshu nityam bhagavata sevaya. Bhagavati uttama shlokir bhaktir bhavati naishtiki. Naishtiki means nishta. This verse says, Nasta prayeshu abhadreshu. Things that are abhadra, inauspicious, anarthos. Things that aren't necessary, that we think are necessary. Anartha. Nasta prayeshu abhadreshu. These things are practically destroyed, not entirely. Nasta prayeshu abhadreshu nityam bhagavata sevaya. How? Nityam bhagavata sevaya. By regularly studying Srimad Bhagavatam. And to study Srimad Bhagavatam, we have to serve the person Bhagavatam. Because that's the only way we'll understand Bhagavatam. It's not a reading exercise. We will read Bhagavad Gita tonight and we'll find things that maybe we never found there before. If I look under the hood, I don't see anything. If I take it to a mechanic, then he sees so many things. This hole is that, he can access. So, just like in anything, we need a teacher in any course. And so much our capacity to understand and apply will be accelerated by the company of the teacher along with the book. So there are two kinds of Bhagavatam, therefore. Book Bhagavatam and the person Bhagavatam. And if we say, well, I don't have much intelligence for studying the scripture, then you be intelligent enough to serve the person who does, who embodies that. And in this way, Nasta Prayashwabhadishu Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya. Always serving the Bhagavatam. Person and book, or just person, <laughs> but not just book. <laughs> Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya. Bhagavati Uttama Sloki Bhakti Bhavati Naishtiki. This way one becomes Naishtiki, Nishta. And what is Srimad Bhagavatam? What does Guru Prana say? Srimad Bhagavatam is characterized by that's that scripture which it is and, and Samaveda it is the, uh, the Samaveda of the Puranas it is the essence of the Mahabharata it is the commentary on Gayatri and it is the explanation of Vedanta Sutra so what is Vedanta Sutra? it is Nyaya Shastra it is the logic Vedanta Sutra was compiled by Vyas in codes to show the concordance of all these Vedic sounds, the jungle of sounds, where to go with it, where is it taking me? So he tried to show how it all says one thing. It's saying this, do this, go here, worship this God, practice this, there's so many things. Where do you find, where is it, what is it actually talking about? So much, so diverse that people conclude it's just a diverse, it's not one body, it's written at different times, different people, but Vyas wrote the concordance in a sutra-like form to try to show how it all works together, all of the Upanishads and Purans, all saying the same thing, actually. So it's the logic of the scripture. When the logic is what? Is an intellectual exercise. So if we study Srimad Bhagavatam, 
serve the person Bhagavatam, carry out their instructions, apply our intelligence to understand what it is, what are they talking about, what is the meaning, and so forth. We understand, then we, we are engaging our intellect, and this is nishta. This is the, the fire of our shraddha. We have to take the, our shraddha and put it in the fire to test it. It's like you would take steel and you put it in the fire. It start just before it melts, you pull it out. It becomes harder and harder. Put it in harder. So when when we apply our intelligence to what it is we're doing, and we are most of us here have been involved in this for a while, so you can understand when you first got involved, maybe you didn't think about it as deeply as you do now. <laughs> what it is, why is it, and so forth. That's a good exercise. And with good company, if we exercise our intellect in that way, then we move from a Kanishtadikari whose faith is komal, tender, and weak, to very firm involvement. That's nishta. Gathering that proper understanding, knowledge in the context of, of bhakti, if we are equipped with that, then the way we'll, we can exercise ourselves and apply ourselves will bring much greater remuneration than when if our intellect is not involved. It's part of our being. So this isn't about, we say gyan shunya bhakti. Yes, our ideal is devotion devoid of, unencumbered by knowledge. But to arrive at that, so much knowledge we have to gather and understanding. What is Krishna saying in Bhagavad Gita? Aham sarvasya prabhu matasavam bhavartate iti matvabhajante mam buddha bhavasamamita. So aham sarvasya prabhu, who knows this about me? Aham sarvasya prabhu, that I'm everything. Matasavam bhavartate, everything's coming from me, who understands, who has this proper understanding that I've been giving in seventh chapter, eighth chapter, ninth chapter. Our Krishna is just giving the theology and bhakti. What is bhakti? What is my devotee? What is my position in relation to the world? What are my shaktis? And he says, who understands? And these are this, Chakravati Pad says, this essence of Bhagavad Gita. That person, who has all this understanding, knowledge, sambandagyan, buddha-bhava-samambhita, he worships me with feeling, with bhav. That kind of person. So, these kind of gatherings are useful, important discussion. So, this way, in a general sense, Nishta means intelligence is involved. Bhagavatam is for, in Gita, for engaging our intelligence and bashing it also. Engaging it, but putting it in its place. That's very nice. It uses all of our intelligence, it calls on us to use our intelligence to the extent that we, that we understand its own limitations. And then, with full faith in the limits of intellect, such that I don't rely upon it for making spiritual progress, but I give myself fully from the heart, then I can get real bhakti. Bhagavatam is showing us, the, calling us to use our intelligence to its limit. And when we do that, we see its limitations. And we know, Sridhar Marsh once said, in the very final days of his manifest pastimes, he said, last night I went to sleep and I had a dream. And my dream 
all of my Shastric knowledge was taken from me. Siddhartha was very well equipped with scriptural knowledge. Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthi Thakur called him Shastra Nipuna, the scriptural genius. He said, in my dream, all my scriptural knowledge was taken away from me, and I was left with only my Shraddha, only my faith to go. So we, we need to acquire some knowledge, that's a fact, and to feed our faith and strengthen our faith. There's a point where our faith is, is weak, and if we exercise intelligence, there's a risk it will go away. We lose our heart. Very subtle. That's why we need to keep good company. We need to exercise our intelligence. We need to think. This is not for non-thinking people. Bhagavad Gita is not for a non-thinking people, person. Arjuna asked questions of Krishna. Now, why ask questions of Krishna? He's God. He knows everything. He couldn't have a more perfect guru. The fact that Arjuna is questioning him is teaching us something. No matter how good of a guru we have, no matter how high, the fact of the matter is we have doubts, we have questions. And they're to be asked. They're not to be repressed for groupthink or for wanting to do the right thing. And I know he's perfect, he knows everything, but therefore I won't ask any questions. I'll just do what he says. Did Arjuna do that? If he did that, there would be no Bhagavad Gita. And who would have a more perfect guru? Who could be a more perfect guru than Krishna? Now, he did it properly, respectfully, but he raised so many doubts, he questioned, he asked, pretty bold. And Krishna answered him, and when it was all over, he said, do you understand? And the implication in that is, if you don't, I'll explain it all over to you again. Repeat it all. That's the business of the guru. Guru's business isn't, isn't to say, why are you asking such a stupid question? Don't ask questions because he doesn't have the answer or the time. When does <laughs> the time, that's what the time is for. <laughs> that's his service <laughs> to answer questions. Now, sometimes people do ask non-questions. That's another thing. We unfortunately have to educate people how to even what, what a question is. <laughs> And then what the questions could be sometimes, but in the real setting, then that's what he's supposed to, that's his business, to clear our doubts. And of course, if we have shrugged, that means we have faith in the scriptures. He quotes the scripture and he shows the logic of that, and that's the way we proceed. So the point is that we're supposed to be really thinking people, but oftentimes we end up being not thinking in the name of serving. And we don't even come to Nishta with the speak of Ruchi and, and, and Asakti and Pava Bhakti. Is the opposite danger there? To mistake intellectual activity for genuine spiritual awareness? Oh, this is very uh, prevalent. Very prevalent. The tendency is to skip over what's necessary for us because that's the part we don't want to hear. That's the part that is most unpalatable that that part is an assault on our identity. That part we tend to turn, just kind of tune out to. It's like a commercial. We're just going to tune out of that part of the program. And other things that we can assimilate intellectually and find intellectually stimulating, we arm ourselves with and spew it out here and there and convince ourselves 
and a few other foolish people that we know something, that we've arrived somewhere, we've gone somewhere. And this is mostly what goes on everywhere. This is very rare. The real equation is very rare. And the result, therefore, the, the ideal attaining it is very rare. But if we can be honest people, really honest and self-searching, and really study, just like we're discussing first chapter of Bhagavad Gita. Now, most people would think that's, that's the one you just skip over. There's so much, the whole Bhagavad Gita is found in the first chapter. The most important shlokas. We'll talk about one tonight. You would think that's the one you just skip over. It's so important. We have to be thinking people. We have to exercise our intelligence. We have to do it in a co- good company. Just unbridled intelligence that will assault our faith. Face it. We have a person who has experience and we're in company with them. Then we, based on that, we find we have a semblance of experience ourselves. Or we have a sense there's an experience to this. We may get a little overflow of that, a reflection of that, a shadow of that. Or just seeing a person who has that experience, we sense it's available, this can be had. So in that company then, even if our intelligence in exercising it starts to assault our faith, we can put it in its place. But outside of that company, without any much experience or taste, intelligence then, if we exercise, can, can devour us. Just do away with God altogether. When I speak of Godi Vaishnavism, no, do away with God altogether. So we have to, we, we can't remain as a Kanishtadikari, we have to engage our intelligence. That means we can't just continue getting the answers from, you know, pre, like they say, preaching to the choir. We have to search, search it out ourselves and, and convince ourselves, study the scripture and so forth. We have to do it in good company. And all the time in doing it, we have to know that the value of that intellectual exercise will be realized in how much that results in our applying ourselves in non-intellectual practices like chanting, serving Vaishnavas. Those aren't intellectual exercises. It may be intelligent to do them, but the exercise itself is, is one of the heart. And if we understand properly, the weight of that will cause us to engage in, for example, chanting our japa attentively, and you will get a result, without a doubt, without a doubt. But if you're just doing it to get it over with because you're supposed to have done it, that's not what this is about. Sit for one hour, two hours, chant Hare Krishna. We, you know, we can criticize the Buddhists for looking at the wall all day long, but it would be good if you sat in front of a wall for a couple hours and chanted Hare Krishna and there was nothing else to look at you know, around the room and whatever and to think about. And <laughs> that's what that time is about, is for stilling the mind and, and hearing the holy name. So if you keep good company and get a good understanding, then you, you'll be forced by that. You'll be burdened by that to apply yourself. If you apply yourself steadily, day by day by day, you'll find there's life, there's life in this. There's a life beyond life. What I thought was my life will be replaced with this practice. And what was, the practice was like music, you know, in the background. And the the world of the senses was the the real world, was was the real, what was on stage. That will change, that will just become music. And the spiritual practice become the main song. I mean, that would be 
dancing according to that, moving according to that in the world, but as they say, not of it. <laughs>